Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you're listening to Vodka O'Clock. And of course, you know, if you uh, have not seen the show notes, go to amberunmasked.com and that's where show notes are kept as long as all the, uh, as well as the blog posts and everything else is good. So joining me today back on the show, who hasn't been here in like six months, is Andy Parks. Hey! Hello dear, how are you? Good. So yeah, it's, um, I think you were here in like maybe June. That's what I wondered. I, was, I, I felt like I had been on since we did a year-end thing last year, but I wasn't positive. Yeah. So um, I thought that it was it would be really cool to follow up my discussions with Josh Neff, who um, we talked so long I split his interview into two pieces, two parts. So he and I were talking on and on about NaNoWriMo and uh, our writing and how different we are. And I remembered that when you were working on your novel, it was basically the same kind of process as NaNoWriMo. It was just done in a different time of year right. and we're only answering to yourself. So uh, it just seemed like a good time to, to catch up good. with you. Well, I was very fascinated listening to you guys talk about it and it made me realize that my feelings about NaNoWriMo had evolved quite a bit because I struggled with my novel off and on for two years, not full time, but off and on. And maybe for the last six months, it was more or less full time. And at times in that, it was so hard to make words. You know, a year ago when November rolled around, I was really struggling to make words. And these people were tweeting every day that they cranked out 1,800 words. 2000. I'm like, fuck you. They, can't, they just can't be any good. And you're pissing me off. And, uh, and it, I really, I don't really believe in a truly shitty first draft. But I have grown to think that there is such a thing as a not very good first draft that's really valuable. So it probably comes with experience too. Yeah. Been creating stories for decades. And then I also have, I've started to realize that I was maybe being unfair to a lot of people who do uh, NaNoWriMo in that I was comparing their experience to mine. And my experience was very, intense for me because I kind of jumped off a cliff where I thought I said I'm not going to take any comic book work for a while and I'm just going to try to make this leap and become a novelist which is kind of possibly arrogant and foolish way to live your life but that's what I did and I'm comparing that experience to people who just want to write and they'd have maybe they don't want to make a career out of it and it's kind of arrogant of me I think to compare the two experiences when I'm constantly saying that not enough people in our society use artwork for fun and leisure. Like, I think more people should draw just because it's a nice thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so more people should probably write, too. And if NaNoWriMo gets more people writing in any way, no matter what their goal is, it's probably a really valuable thing, and I shouldn't be huffy about it. Yeah, that's. I probably had those similar feelings and, and like you said, talking about the draft, when I first heard what it was, I thought, oh, my gosh, you people are writing 50,000 words, but it's probably garbage. Right. And then this was, you know, so I had heard about it for years, and this was my first time taking a look at it and, and doing it myself. There were people in week two posting that they were done. <laughs> I'm just like, how? How did you? And I, and I guess there's maybe a slight cheat factor like if you're like you're allowed to outline technically right. like they I mean there are rules but it's not that anybody would know so uh, you know it's quite possible that their outlines were just so done right. and so full that they really didn't have to build that up much maybe they maybe it was like you know maybe they only had to put dialogue in or something right. I don't know well you're being generous I, I would think the first thing that came to my mind is well they're not writing they're typing yeah I mean, Yes, you can produce that many words, but I mean, Jesus, does it, I mean, it has to be something. It's hard to believe you could, what'd you say? Mine, mine definitely got better. Yeah. Mine was this total info dump right. for like two weeks was, and then as I got about halfway there, it definitely changed. And I started feeling like, okay, I can pay attention more to this sentence now that I know how many hours it takes me to do this in a day. Mm -hmm. And other people, like you know, like I said when I was talking to Josh, that you know, other people don't have that luxury. They might only have a half an hour or an hour a day right. or something like that. They don't have the luxury. But I had the time 
once I figured out the groove to just sit back and say, okay, that sentence could be better. But I still, you know, so uh, because I sent you the draft and I, you know, I I guarantee you that 40,000 first words of it, you know, are cringeworthy, Mm. but. I haven't started yet. I'm going to format it tonight and get it on my Kindle, which is, I'm such a spoiled little shit now. That's the only way I like to read. Yeah, me too. I, I really do too. Except I have like the older Kindle, so I, I keep running out of space every time I download. Oh, like that's a, a drag. Like, yeah. you need to delete more. <laughs> so you, your Kindle does not have a light? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it has the backlight. Oh, it, it does. Was the first, oh, good. It was the first color uh-huh. version. Oh, interesting. And it's, but it's still like heavy sometimes, like if my, my hands have been, I, I, that's the other thing that I've noticed is obviously when you're typing that much, how much fatigue there is physically, right, right. which is dumb to say something that's not, uh, you know, working out or standing on your feet all day, yeah, but, but it's, it's still, it's, yeah. so my, my hands would get really cramped up and everything. And, um, and then I would be using my phone to sit in bed and text and be on Twitter and my my fingers would just be so cramped up from grasping my phone no. that I would go to pick up the Kindle. I'm like, this is too heavy. <laughs> <laughs> my mom handed me this big giant book of short stories, and the thing is just massive. Right. And I'm like, oh my god, how do you hold? How do you hold? This? Right. Yeah, it's such a drag. And remembering your place and all that sloppy yeah. stuff that real <laughs> books have to. But it might, like Grecian, Alex Grecian is just horrified he still loves the feel of books in his hand yeah i do but my vision is better with the kindle my mom too which i didn't expect and i you know and i also don't have a lot of space so for that reason alone it's it's better but i like the feel of a book better and the smell obviously you're not going to get that book smell which is funny because somebody posted um a blog they found all kinds of perfumes and colognes and candles that are all book scented I'm like, oh, this is so great. So that's the key. Get... Yeah, you read your Kindle and you have a little candle burning. Light a candle and then light a candle. Right. It smells like a book. So I'm curious, I'm trying to remember your highest word day was something like three thousand something or what? Um, my last day, my last day, I really just wanted to finish, yeah. and I got for six thousand. Oh my word. god! Wow. I... Because I was I was cruising right along by then, right. like I. But I didn't. I, I told Josh this, and this is it's. And I even tweeted it because it's so ridiculous. I hadn't decided my killer until the morning of my last day of writing. That's what I was going to ask you. Is when because you had texted me that I think at some point, and I yeah, don't I think still, I knew when you turned that corner. It wasn't until your last day when you decided who had done it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Because I had it possibly being three different people, so there's clues for several people. <laughs> that's amazing. So yours is a pure mystery yep i didn't i worry about mine that it's kind of a tweener it's not really a mystery it's kind of a crime novel and it's kind of a romance novel i hope mine has no sex that's probably the most surprising oh, wow, thing look at you yeah none not even a kiss <laughs> mine has yeah mine has quite a bit yeah i, I well I, I was thinking i i'm like wow i really totally like have have nothing to offer in that regard because everybody in it is having bad relationships. Right. <laughs> I, d- I never sent you my big sex scene. No, I? Oh, no I want to know what it is. I want to know if you, you if I'll send you my sex. I think I'm allowed to oh. do that. Okay. <laughs> so I think my highest day on the novel was a little over 2000. And that those were the days, these kind of glorious days where you're in the middle of a chapter when your words kind of run out. And mm-hmm. so you, the next several thousand words is clearly mapped out because you have to finish this chapter. You have to finish this bit of business that gets character A from here to here. That was my average. Yeah. I, think, um, I don't know if I can still open the, um, as you hear me clunking, <laughs> clunking around with my very, very loud uh, keyboard. Um, that thing is loud. I don't think mine makes any noise at all. My daily average was 1846. Oh, that's amazing. I was, yeah. when I, even when I was full-time, and we should talk about that too, about hours. Um, I think if I got to 1400 on a full-time day, I was pretty happy. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I the the great thing is it gives you this chart to show you um you need to you should be averaging like 1660 words per day mm. in order to complete the 50,000 in the month. So And is that every day? No. That would be every yeah. day including weekends. Okay. So I thought, well, screw that. I already know I'm never going to – I was like, I'm never going to be able to do that. I know I'm not going to be able to do that. Plus, I had some modeling days. Right. So I was like – I was just admitting defeat before I even started, which was one of the reasons I was willing to sign up. Right. Because I didn't expect to finish. And you can see that it's not until halfway through the month that I finally caught up to where the averages needed to be. Right. Like and I had some really good days in order to close that gap. I had to have some three thousand word days. Right. But um Did you find that uh when you hit halfway or so it started to become a downhill thing? Like where it just became a lot easier? It definitely came became a lot yeah. easier. Alex again, I'm gonna mention Alex Cretion whenever I'm talking about my novel because he was very there Hi, there for me I- and yes. <laughs> In terms of advice and support, he was very there for me while I was working on it. And he kept saying, look, you will hit this point around halfway where it just becomes a downhill race and you it'll just get tons easier. And it was true. Yeah, it was very, very yeah. true. Um, part of that was because I had never in my life tried writing full time. Right. So I had never it, really written a word of prose fiction in my life until I started this novel. I mean, well, you know, maybe in college. Wow. Okay. So it was pretty. So can you can you give the elevator pitch? Will you say anything about it or? Are you yeah, too... it's it's, no. it's crime fiction and set in Kansas City in '42, and I wanted to write about hats. Yes, there are a lot of <laughs> I do. I mentioned there's a one point um, the bad guy has acquired like an old factory, an abandoned factory, to fulfill his evil plans, and and I wow. decided that before him it was owned by a hat maker and that they couldn't make a go of it. So the factory is full of all the old hat blocks and, you know, so along the wall, it looks like a bunch of old heads kind of propped up on the wall and all the shapes of the hats and so on. Yeah. Grecian sent me a text when he got to that part, like you had to throw the hat factory in there, didn't you? Of course. (laughs) And I'm always worried about when somebody enters a room, where do they put their hat? What do they do with it? Are they tipping it to the lady? You know, it's probably too much. But I like putting the hats on the ladies, too. That's fun. Yeah, well, I, that's one of the the very vibrant visual things in the Agent Carter commercials yeah. is hats. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, and I can't see a hat like that on a woman without thinking of um, the Carmen San Diego. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, she's ruined hats for all right. women. I kind of I wanted to write about good men who did not get to go save the world and what that was like kind of living in that shadow. Oh, I see. The men who were not at the war. Yeah, right. My two leads are both unable to serve for physical reasons, one of whom has a limp, so you could tell by looking at him why he's not serving. The other one has no physical ailment that's visible. So he probably lives under more of a shadow because people look at him and go, what's your problem? Very interesting. Now, how how much role do women play in in your book? Um, there's really just one. Well, that's not true. My lead's mother is pretty significant. The secretary at the they're private investigators. The secretary where they work is pretty significant. But mainly, it's the woman that my lead, my main lead, falls in love with. Because mine is the. I knew it would be the opposite of yours. I had that feeling. Uh, mine only has a, a couple minor male characters. Oh, interesting. And then, like, the most significant male character is the husband of the main character. Uh-huh. And, um, like I said, everybody's relationships suck. You're right. In this. So, Why would that be, um, I can't imagine. <laughs> and it was so funny. Somebody on, somebody on Twitter asked, you know, have you ever put yourself, you know, what about yourself have you put in your book or something like that? And I'm like, I could take up your entire timeline. Yeah, yeah. Every one of my characters is filled with stuff from my yeah, life. Yeah, and don't you think they're all just reflecting little bits of you that might exist in certain places, certain times? It is, in a very uh, a very dissociative personality right. kind of way. Because, I mean, there's some fantasy fulfillment, like, oh, okay, she had that job, but she's doing it right, right, right. you know, but she's actually making money. Right, right. 
<laughs> or, you know, or if a, if a marriage works out or, you know, anything. Right. It's like, oh, look. But that's one of the things that I, I didn't want to do, which is done very often in cozy mysteries, is they take away all question of financial trouble. Oh, interesting. It's almost immediate in book one of any series that the main character will have financial trouble and then a windfall happens. Oh. And it's just annoying. It's really, really annoying. It's like, poof, you know, great Aunt Betsy from Montana just died and left me her whole <laughs> alpaca farm, and it's worth billions. So they just want to remove that from the equation so they can, they yeah, And I'm like, I just can't. Huh. I'm like, you know, I have rich people in my book. Which is funny because you'll see the bitterness I have reflected. Yes, right. <laughs> um, you know, people. A lot of this takes place at a country club. Oh, nice. And I have been exposed to those people, <laughs> and so I know it's it's just one of those things where when you're in the the position of like serving those people mm. with whatever your skill, right. it's you just end up with this. Like, okay, this is my lot in life to serve you, right, you know, <laughs> to make sure that you have your needs met. Right. And, you know, and, and of course, this entire year, as we look back, at least on American news, we went through all of the Occupy mm -hmm. Wall Street protests and now the Ferguson, pro, you know, protests and marches right. that are nonstop. And so much of this has to do with class yeah, and yeah. money. I just, and it's I, I watched a, I've been watching a ton of Netflix because I've been inking again so I can have stuff on. I can have the TV on, which I can never do as a writer. Right. Um, so I've been watching tons of Netflix stuff and going through the documentaries, which are good because you don't always have to be looking at them. Right. Um, so I watched a Gore Vidal thing yesterday and he fascinates me. I think you'd really like him. Do you know much about him? I don't know much. Yeah, no. he's just really cranky intellectual. Yeah, great quote. Yeah, and it, <laughs> gay, but um, lived with a man most of his life who he said that he did not have a sexual relationship with. He had this idea that friendship and sex did not go hand in hand. Interesting. Um, so he said, I greatly believe in promiscuity, but uh, I don't have a sexual relationship with, I forget the guy's name, Donald or whatever, because that would ruin things. Um, but yeah, I, I thought of it because he had this great quote about what we've, uh, done in America. He said, what we've achieved in America is socialism for the rich and free enterprise for the poor. Yeah. And, and I, I think that when it comes to storytelling, there needs to be some realism. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things actually is probably the most popular tweet I've ever put out was I kind of dissed at Gilmore Girls today. Oh, really? Because I started watching that, and I'm like, oh, these poor rich people. Wow, how their lives are so... Yeah, I don't so... know. Which, somebody... It's weird. Is it new to Netflix? I, a tons of my friends I are talking I, about it lately. Yeah, and I had never yeah. seen it. So, um, I, I mean, it's kind of like a, you know, a middle-class single mom, mm -hmm. but her, her parents are like billionaires or something. Uh -huh. So, like, it is... And it, it's like, okay, fine, maybe she chose to not take their money and she chose to struggle until her kid was a teenager. But the second it was like, I need to send my daughter to school to a private school that costs a lot of money. Gee, mm -hmm. you know, I mean the biggest plot line there was how hard it was for her to ask. And that was about 10 seconds of conversation. Oh really? Yeah. Um, this is really like what I hate, you know, and I get that we do that in comics all the time mm -hmm. with Tony and Batman because it's easy for them to have their gadgets and their right. stuff to fight crime. And the guy I'm most associated with, too, Ollie, Oliver Queen. Oliver yeah. Queen, yeah. I, I just watched a couple episodes. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's it takes out that factor of, gee, how on earth are they affording these gadgets? But when I'm I'm trying to write a mystery or any kind of story, I guess, I can't just say, you know, oh, well... It's there's there should be no financial trouble. Mm. I mean, if you're going to write The Great Gatsby, then fine, then write The Great Gatsby. Right. If you're going to make a TV show about rich people, like I started, I tried watching um, the first couple episodes of Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Oh, I don't know about that. 
And the main character is a popular writer, and she and all her friends live in Hollywood. So their houses are gigantic. And it's like nobody even in Hollywood has a gigantic house. Right, right. Yeah, I I know very successful people in Hollywood who live in a tiny little place with no lot, you know. No, these are like giant, like unbelievably huge houses. They might have nice cars, but they probably don't have a huge house. And it's like, it's like, okay, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I just think it's hilarious. Yeah, I remember I was sitting at uh, in. Oh God, it sound, I sound like such a name dropper. I was sitting at Chateau Marmont with my agent guy once in Hollywood, and he asked where I lived and what it was like and so on. And I described our house, which is, I don't know, with a finished basement like eighteen hundred square feet, and is worth one hundred forty-five thousand or so. And he said, "Oh, he like coughed up his drink." <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I think I could buy our driveway for that much here. Yeah, yeah. I I knew people that came from California, and um, when they would relocate out to to Pennsylvania, it was just like mind blowing how they had to buy these giant, really really huge houses out here. Otherwise, they would get capital gains tax. Right, right. And for comics so, people, especially, it doesn't. I mean, it makes way more sense to live in a place where the cost of living is lower because they're not going to pay you anymore based on where you live. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I guess if you have, like, obviously, unless you have a day job, like I know people who work at Disney, right? So they need to live in California. Yeah, right, right. Um, and then I guess that they do their comics on the side, right. but yeah, most people, I don't know. So I mean, I need to ask you a couple things. One, I have to confess, I don't exactly know what a cozy mystery means. What it. Okay. It, like I think of murder she wrote when you say that. What, yes, basically. Okay. Basically, there's usually the violence is not graphic. Uh huh. It's very um, female friendly. Usually, most of the time, the main characters are female, but not always. Okay. Um, because like one of my favorite b- book series was the Cat Who Mysteries by Lillian Jackson Braun, uh-huh. and her main character was actually a man. Uh huh. And because of that, I kept forgetting she was a woman that wrote it because she nailed this voice so well mm-hmm. um it's usually not professional crime solvers there's usually like some kind of theme that brings them into it like um oh, i'm blanking on the writer's name right now but one of the ones that i love it takes place in a bed and breakfast oh okay and um so the woman just keeps getting roped into these mysteries and right like her mother-in-law lives there and you know they just have a hilarious relationship and um so there's usually some kind of theme like that uh-huh. that's either like food or takes place in a library or a knitting club and um I think the main component though is that they're not they're not going to be like they're not going to satisfy noir people <laughs> Yeah right okay um doesn't matter how good the story and is your lead um somebody who does this a lot who is like an amateur detective or are they professional or do they just get sucked into it by happenstance it's just getting sucked into it i suppose there are like i read a janet ivanovich book recently and it's not even so much hers her name is just the biggest on the cover Mm -hmm. but um it's her and, and lee goldberg um write a series about an fbi agent and an art thief that's her um, confidential informant. That was sort of like borderline because it, it was like um, it was a lot like white collar, the TV show. Mm-hmm. So there was violence. There was perceived going to be violence and somebody would just get knocked out. You know, it's like, oh, somebody's about to be tortured in a horrible, horrible way. Right. And, you know, and it didn't it, it wouldn't happen for whatever reason. So. With the cozies, if something like sexual assault is the crime, you're not going to hear the details of mm-hmm. it. Whereas when I read, you know, works that my friends write, right. they put every gory detail right. in into those crimes. Okay. And, you know, whether, you know, if it's drug use and stuff like that. So that's interesting. So that's yeah. And is this a, a pretty commercial area right now do you know 
Um, I think mm-hmm. so. I mean, be only I, I think it's it's a pretty saturated area. Oh, okay. So it's a very it's very commercial in that there's a ton of it out right, there. Right. Which, which might be why it's ways. really hard to yeah. do. I mean that it might be impossible to you know get an agent for this kind of work right. because there's so much. Right. Did you know I I don't know if I talked to you about this. I found out recently a really practical um, explanation for why people use pseudonyms sometimes. And I, I'd never heard of it before. Um, I met this guy who's been writing for like 30 years, making a living. And he's written a lot of sci-fi stuff, but some other stuff too. So he was describing how he started using a pseudonym. And it was it happened in the modern age of book ordering, where the book store chains have computers that tell them what everything is sold over the last decade. Oh, yeah. So he, he wrote a sci-fi thing, and it sold really well. And then he wrote a Western, kind of totally off the beaten path for him, but he wrote a Western thing, and it sold okay, but much poorer than the sci-fi thing. And what he found, though, was that if he went back, if he had done both of those under his real name, when it was time to write the next part of the sci-fi book, the bookstores would have looked and said, well, shit, his last book only sold this much, so we're not going to order that. They would have neglected to look back and find out what the, sci- the same sci-fi book series sold. So he created a pseudonym so he could write these other westerns and not get punished for them by the bookstore orderers. Okay, that makes sense because it's basically just branding now. Yeah, right. It's, I, I mean, I know there are writers who, um, like one of my favorite mystery writers is Susan Wittig Albert, but she also writes Beatrix Potter books. Oh, really? So she uses an entirely different name for those. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it's so different. It's the same with the J.K. Rowling thing. Right. Um, now, did she she wrote after Potter? She wrote one under a different name, but then she fessed up later, got outed, or how did that work? She got outed. Okay. Uh, there was a leak, and apparently, it came out of somebody who worked at her lawyer's office. Uh, like it was, it was like not supposed to come out. And um, but yeah, she has a couple, and now they're going to be like turned into TV series, of course. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so, I've actually heard that know. her. I mean, the Potter stuff is good too. It's not really my kind of thing, but it's quite good. But I've heard that her post Potter stuff is really worth reading, and I haven't I haven't checked it out yet. I didn't read the Casual Vacancy because mm. I I didn't hear anything good about mm. it. But I read it, um, Cuckoo's Calling, and it was really good until the reveal of who her murderer was mm-hmm. and then it sucked. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a follow-up to that book because that's a PI and that's more like a cozy. I mean, right. even though the person, even though her main character is male and a PI, they're, they're kind of fluffier. Right. Um, so I haven't read the second one from that yet. I wanted to, I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm directing our conversation too much. No, you should tell me to shut the fuck up and ask me a question. I am like more than half of my moonshine gone. Good. So. Um, we were um, talking about work days earlier, and do you think we've ever covered this in our previous chats about how much I consider to be a good work day, how long I have to work to be happy? No, but it's interesting because I read Joe Lansdale um, chime in on that. On his, oh, really? he's, he's a really good blogger, uh-huh. sort of. Like he posts basically on Facebook. And it, um, you can see on Twitter when he's written something. Oh, okay. So, um, go ahead. Tell me, well, tell me what you're. I've come to is. decide over years of doing inking or writing that if I do four actual hours of work a day, like focused, not checking email, really focused four hours, that's a really good productive day. And when I tell that to a lot of people, I see them kind of glaze over like, oh, what a lazy asshole. Um, No, I'm right there with you. But if you think about it, and if I start drilling people, like, well, when you're at the office, how much of that time are you walking down the hall to get supplies or going to get coffee or going to the restroom or going on a smoke break? And how much actual brain time are you putting in each day? And I think four hours is really a lot to ask. Yeah, no, I completely agree because that's, that's what I was finding was I would either start at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. And it was like I was pretty hard on myself about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would stop when I started to feel like my brain was done. Right. 
which was like one in the afternoon. Yeah, I remember one day on the novel, I went. I had a 2,000 word goal that day, which was pretty aggressive. I was getting fed up, and I really wanted to finish. And uh, I felt the words kind of run out on me at about 1,500. But I cranked through, and I made the 2,000. And I went the next day and discovered that I really just made more work for myself because it was just shit. Because it was shit. Yeah, it was just turning to nonsense. And so I had to dissect it and figure out if there was anything keepable and so on. And it just taught me that I need to listen to my brain. When it says, look, I can't do this anymore, you just kind of have to go, okay. Now it's time to go do the laundry or iron a couple shirts or something. Don't you also take a really long walk with your dog? I do, and I've gotten really into a habit with that. Um, I get up, I eat a pretty hearty breakfast, like an, an omelet and some black beans or something. I maybe look at email, and then I try to do it like an hour work, hour and a half. And then we walk about an hour. We go two and a half miles, um, then come home and really get into the heart of the day. Because that's pretty much um, what I was reading when Lansdale was describing his day. He um, he had a certain amount of time that he devoted to his martial arts oh, yeah. practice. And ideally, I, I would love that because I, I miss it. But right. I don't get up, get my ass out unless I'm already out, which was why when I was going to the, to the gym or going dancing or whatever, I had to leave right from my office. Mm-hmm. Because the second my ass is home, I'm, I'm not leaving. Right. So the, if you want to call it luxury, whatever, that I've had sitting here, uh, I miss the movement. Right. And, I, and I'm still not at all compelled to just go out my door and walk yeah. here. Sidewalks here. It's not very safe here. Oh, really? That way. Yeah. And you can't go at night because we don't have street lights either. Right. <laughs> so you'll just get run over. We um, have one little stretch of our dog walk where I get mad at somebody every day because it's supposed to be 30 miles an hour and there's no sidewalk and we're walking yeah. on the road and somebody will zip by like 50 and I'm just like, mother son of yeah, I want to be able to, like, if I'm taking a walk, I want to be able to put some earbuds in yeah. and feel safe. I do do that, and I, can, I mean, you know, it doesn't block out everything, but I do sometimes worry that a Prius, which makes almost no noise if it's going no. slow, will come along and surprise me. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I have extraordinarily neglected my physical yeah, self. Yeah, and that, I don't want to, I'm not trying to nag you in any way, but... um I've just done it finally enough. I did it for enough weeks or months that I realized the other day that it wasn't it was no longer optional really. I had an I- ideal day to not do it. It was kind of shitty out and I was sleepy. I didn't sleep well. And I said, "No, I just not it's not I'm not going to skip. It's not worth right. not feeling well, good." Well, once you stop it's very hard to, yeah, to right. stop. That's how I even feel though about the writing. Yeah. Was right. um everybody said take time off and don't edit, don't even try to rewrite, you know, right away. And I said, okay, well, that's good. I've got a script to work on instead, so I'll still keep writing. But I rewarded myself with a day off Mm -hmm. of sitting and watching TV and reading that um, over this weekend, trying to get some writing done was like, it was the same as getting into an exercise routine again. It was like, oh, this is like... I stopped. Right, right. Stopped, and now I gotta try to remember how my brain works again. And, right. Um, and like you said, it's it's a dedicated writing time. I know some people actually purchase software to turn off yes. their um, yes. their thing. I don't. I I don't know. I'm fine without doing that because I basically I need my internet open for research. Right. I feel that um, way too. I. You know what I tell those people? I tell them that on my desk. There is a decanter of rum and there's a decanter of whiskey. Uh-huh. And I'm able to function and get work done every day with those fucking things sitting there. Uh-huh. And I, I'm proud of that. I don't want to take all the booze out of my house because I can't act like an adult and get my work done. Yeah, I know. And that's I was surprised and because I was already, you know, mad at Facebook for for their typical bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was very easy for me to not spend so much time on there. Mm-hmm. And and it, what hurts is that there's people that I only 
know through those right. networks. Right. So, um, but it was, if I don't look at it, it's kind of the same as, as the working out or doing anything else. Um, this is my eating too. We were talking about eating before I turned on the recorder. If I, I need to go as long as possible without eating because once mm. I start, I stop. Uh, so that's why I have my coffee in the morning and I might have something like a, like a cookie. There are these little digestive cookies uh-huh. to just keep my stomach from growling. And I need to not eat until <laughs> as long as really? possible. Wow. That's interesting. And, and what I was doing was I was using my word count as like, okay, now you can go eat. Nice. Yeah. I, I think was, it's, I, some people would maybe disagree. I think it's healthy and, and cool the way you reward yourself. Like we've talked about, you you know, you hit your word goal and you were gonna allow yourself this or that. I think it's a good way to operate. Yeah. I mean I don't I don't advocate anybody starving. Right. No, right. No, because if it got to be eleven thirty and I and it was like, okay, well I hit one thousand and my goal is two thousand today, okay, one thousand I can take a break and I can go eat something. But it would be something small or you know, insignificant. But I'm, I mean, I, I, I'm the same as you. I've got, well, I've got the moonshine open right now that I'm drinking, but I've got the Jack Daniels on the floor next to me and the Bushmills next to that, <laughs> right next, and, and other people would probably wonder why they're not empty. Right, right. And it's like, no, I went out and I, you know, you know I just bought, I, um, you know, to reward myself, I bought that bottle of Hanger mm-hmm. One, which is extremely expensive in my book. It was like $38 nice. for a bottle vodka um but you're right you deserve it so i was like and this bottle will last me (laughs) like five months it's you know it's not it's not like it's like the moonshine is goes down way faster Mm -hmm. that's yeah it's that can be very tricky stuff because it's delicious but it's kind of strong yeah. And if you just sip that all night, you feel very pleasant, but then you realize I haven't hydrated and yeah. I have not eaten anything and I've just consumed actually a lot of alcohol even though it didn't taste like it. Right. And that's and I'm totally different like you know, I can't just grab the scotch and and just drink a lot of it. that's not going to happen. Right. The, the only time that happens is like when I'm out with writers. Right. <laughs> like when I would go to like Noircon stuff. It was, you know, those people must must have, like, they're probably so happy that they haven't seen me in years. Um, <laughs> I doubt that. Because, you know, but it was, I was out, and it was celebrating, and it was doing all of these things, and listening to people talk about their books. And, right. um, so, you you know, you go from location to location, and everybody's got their own bottle, and everybody, there was, the bus had bottles, and <laughs> then you went to the go-go bar, and you had more, right. and... You know, so it was, it, you know, it's sort of that Comic-Con kind of thing. Like, yeah, okay, I can be drunk at a Comic-Con. Right. It's like, at home, why would I do that? I would just be like, it would be so wasted. Right. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't even get myself drunk. I need to be with somebody else. Yeah. Do you, so now that you haven't been doing 9 to 5, you don't have to get up at a certain hour. Do you, you still, you don't drink every day? No. Yeah, I I like to. I mean, I I like the flavor of stuff, yeah. and that's my downfall. Um, I, you know, I would probably add stuff to my coffee every day for flavor. Right. Um, and people would probably say, "Oh, well, you're an alcoholic." Right. But it's like I'm like, no, I just really like chocolate vodka. Right. You know, and it's so no, I I don't, but it's. I, I confess, I do drink every day, and I I think I've gotten over worrying about it because I don't... I, yeah, I don't think a class or two... Yeah, I don't have an addictive... I just... I don't have that once I get started, I can't stop thing. I'm pretty good at juggling, balancing my... what I call maintaining a William Powell thin man high, you know. Yeah. Just <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I would post my... Um, you know, my I was drinking Cosmos. Yes, I want to hear about your Cosmos. I don't... I, they were so good. So you mentioned lime. I thought they were like a cranberry thing. What is, what is it? Yes, because lazy people go to bars and they order vodka and cranberry, mm. which is not a cosmo. Okay. So um, 
at least the recipe that I had, you uh, and mind you, I was like freshly squeezing the limes, mm. like I was cut going through limes. That's the like only cream. way, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you get it all pulpy and good, and put some sugar in with the lime juice so that it would dissolve, okay. and then you put that in the shaker with ice, and you add the vodka, the triple sec. And the splash of cranberry. So it's really not cranberry base. There's a splash, but it's... No, it's a splash. Huh. That's why it's sort of pink and not... Interesting. God damn, that sounds so delightful. It is. It was so good. And a couple times I did it with plain vodka, and a couple times I did it with either a lemon or an orange. Mm-hmm. And um, you definitely taste the difference. Right. So right. Um, triple sec is one of my weaknesses. Like I was saying about chocolate vodka. Have you, I like sugary sweet stuff that still tastes like vodka. Have you ever subbed out or done a taste test between triple sec and orange curacao or curacao, however the hell you say that? Um, they, you know, they're pretty much, I think they're pretty much the same. That's what I thought. I, yeah, right. I mean, I, the blue stuff is fun for making cocktails. I keep orange curacao on hand for uh, my ties. And I've often wondered if I could just buy triple sec and it would be about the same thing. You probably can, but it's definitely a color factor. Right. Like, I came up with some really fun, um, like, superhero-themed cocktails, and um, it's, it's you know, cool when you can have blue stuff. And now they make so many crazy novelty um, vodkas, especially. Yeah, yeah. And the, my next prediction is they're going to be doing all this with bourbon. Right. Um. But, I mean, you go down the vodka aisle, and it's like a rainbow now. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, the moonshines, you know, there isn't just moonshine anymore. Now there's like four or five different right. flavors. And um, But I know bourbon is the big thing, and part of it is because I've heard that there's a shortage. I don't know how, and I don't know why, but if you follow um, Ginny Tonic and Charlie Tonic on Twitter. Oh, I don't. They're, they're friends of mine uh-huh. who and blog about booze. So, yeah, apparently there's, like, some kind of bourbon shortage. Maybe it has something to do with crops. Well, this is something I've wondered about, because any decent bourbon has to be prepared, let's say, at least four years out, right? I think even Jim Beam is aged four years. Mm. The good things are aged maybe eight. Well, I've wondered how are we seeing this explosion of bourbons you know, small batch and all this stuff coming out. How did Apparently how did they anticipate the, the mar- <laughs> anticipate the marketplace? But maybe they didn't. Maybe they are taking yeah. what they already well, had in the barrel and and you know tweaking yeah. it, and so they're going to run out at some point. There, yeah. Apparently, I can't remember what website it was on, but there was a big sort of expose, if you will, on the craft bourbon. Right. And how? Oh yeah. Most of them are not even really. Yeah, actually, most of them are made by the same three chains. They're all yeah. made by the same company. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's true of Templeton Rye, which is a big thing around here. Um, for a while, you can even get it, and it was, and it, people, it's really highly sought after. And if you see it in a bar, you're like, oh, give it to Templeton. I'm going to live it high on the hog tonight. And it turns out it's just fucking made by some, Jim Beam bought it out, and they probably just add different yeah. ratios of caramel to it or whatever. Yeah, and it's they it's. It's marketability. I'm sure they have their own trade shows, just mm-hmm. like every other industry. Yeah. So I'm sure they they have testers and market feedback and right. research to you know what the next thing is. And then there are these people who set the trends, whether it's the the bloggers that really do it or if it's just getting the word to the bloggers. Right. But um, you know, it's I don't know. It's it's like you know. Anything else just happens to be booze. Right, right. <laughs> I often think that, I know you don't watch Mad Men. Um, no. I'm a fan of it, and I think Matt Weiner, who created Mad Men, is, probably deserves a lot of credit for this cocktail culture that we have going on. Oh, yeah. Because I think, you know, seeing Don Draper mix old fashions on Mad Men every week probably got a lot of people into that vibe. But even before that, a lot of people blamed the martini craze on Sex in the City. Oh, or right. Yeah, yeah. I say blame because I never saw the right. show. Um, I have, it's not like I hold that show in high regard, right. so I say blame instead of credit. 
But yeah, the martini craze was because those very rich women would order Cosmos right, right. all the time and wear their shoes that cost, you know, <laughs> right. just a car. Right. So uh, it's, uh, so that's, I was, I was sort of had this like snobby, um, like barrier that I didn't, I didn't want to ever have a Cosmo because a, I'm not that big on, on cranberry. I mean, I like them, but mm-hmm. you know, do without it. And, um, and I thought, Oh my God, I just don't want to be seen as one of those women. Right, right. And it's a really good, strong drink. There's nothing girly yeah. about the, <laughs> the amount of vodka. In there. Did you measure your vodka? Do you know how many ounces? Um, I did at first and then I usually don't. Um, once I kind of get the hang of right. it, I think it was supposed to be, I think I was doing like three ounces because oh, yeah. everything I do is usually double because my glasses are really right. big. I usually do like so. when I'm making a stiff, like an old fashioned or Manhattan, I usually do the, you know, the traditional little metal jigger thing. Yeah. I do. What do they call it? One is a, one side is a pony and one's a, I forget. Anyway, one's an ounce, one's an ounce and a half. And I usually do one of each. So I end up with two and a half ounces of booze and then whatever. Yeah. That sounds about. I mean, I it it was probably for their measurement, which would only you know like fill one of my glasses maybe three quarters of the way. I think it was an ounce and a half of the vodka, but then the triple sec and the cranberry were only it only said splash. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, so I would um, increase all of that for myself, and I managed to keep it pretty consistent. Good for you. How many did you have that night, dear? Well, I would. I never had more than two. Okay. <laughs> I was just, you know, that every time I, you know, I wanted one, I was like, let me see if there's lines. Right. Nice. I mean, you know, the cranberry juice bottle is going to last quite a while. Right. That's one of the best things about Costco. They have these big bags of limes for like six dollars. You like? Yeah. Well, limes were supposed to be the other like. Crazy they were really. Like they were like a dollar each expensive. last summer, if I remember right. Yeah. They were really hard and, to come by. Yeah, they're normal. They're. I don't know. They're totally normal now. We can all afford limes now that gas is down to two and a quarter or whatever. Yeah, right? It's pretty free. So I, I, I did, uh, and you know, and I and I had to, you know, the first time anyway, that I would make the the drink, I wanted it to take a picture of it to be that person who tweets the picture of what they're having. Right. And um, so I made sure to, because it was nice and pulpy and you could see the pulp in it, um, I made sure to take some of the, uh, rind from the the lime mm. and like you know a couple curly cues and have them in the glass and I would put, nice. I put the ice in my glass too you're probably not supposed to you put the what in I put the ice from the shaker oh okay, okay. My glass, my, I mean my martini glasses are really big so yeah, I had the room for ice so I put you know so that in and I had the lime like swirlies around and everything so it was like this perfection of a drink nice. do you uh Oh, jeez. I almost said to you, do you do a lot of rimming? <laughs> yeah. When I make a sidecar, I have to rim my Yeah, mouth. okay, good. I didn't with the Cosmos, now, what do you, but I did. I, I always find if you use, like, the perfect way to rim a glass to me is to take a little wedge of lime and run that around the glass. Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's all it was. With the sidecar, I use lemon. It's just the right amount of stickiness, you know. Yep. Yeah. Are we, are yeah. we classy? We are. Strong talking about. <laughs> so can I put you on the spot? Yeah. It sounded like you'd been reading Ciudad. I was. So I, I'm very curious what you would think of how we treated our little female, vic, you know, kidnap victim. And if you're not um, thrilled with it, you should absolutely tell me. Okay. Because, I, yeah, no, because I was kind of mad about it. Okay. And I didn't know if it was okay to tell sure, you that. Sure, of course. Okay. So, first of all, she's one of the only... She's she's the only main female mm-hmm. character. Yeah. Which is okay, because like I said, my favorite movie of the year was John Wick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I didn't see that. I'm, I'm all for men and their guns. Right. I'm okay with that. But, um... So, what bothered me about her storyline was the relationship with her father was not defined very well to me mm-hmm. um, in that it seemed like he was not worried about her. There was some kind of phrase in there where it said that he was worried about something more precious. 
Yeah. And I thought, okay, so what's more precious than her? Obviously, he doesn't give a shit about his daughter. But then the whole point was to get her back to him. So I didn't, well, to, to the home. Yeah, even right. he I think he cares about her to a point. He cares about her until it's either her or him. Yeah, so it was, so I was kind of like, okay, well, that wasn't very clear mm -hmm. that, you know, what did he find more important? Um, but then it, there was this whole relationship between her and the hero, Tyler, that was supposed to, it, people even called it that, that she was like a daughter to him. Mm -hmm. And then he went romantic. And I was like, well, the whole thing is talking about how young this girl is. How, you know, what? Right. Did you, I didn't really think of it as romantic. Um, now. They're fucking each other. They're what? What'd you say? <laughs> Wasn't there fucking oh, going God, on? Oh, no, no. There was, there was, there was romance going on. There's only the one kiss in the car at the end, right? There's romance happening. Huh. Well, to be fair, I did, I wrote this five years ago, so my memory... But here's what, how I pictured in my mind, that um, she has kind of reconnected to him to what it's like to care about somebody else. Right. And so he feels, I would say, attracted to her, but not in a sexual way. And she feels all the... Um, all the big victim savior stuff, but also a little bit of probably not the most mature kind of crush feeling with anyway. anyway. And that would, that would be normal. Right. You know, perfectly. it's why we have crushes on our teachers or on anybody who helps us. I mean, that would be normal, but except that he reciprocated and it was no longer like, you know, it wasn't a daughter relationship. It wasn't right. a she's like sister to me relationship. It was like completely did this 180 huh. from from that nice dinner that they were having right. into into some sort of romantic thing. I really don't think of them as romantic, but maybe it comes off that way. It, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I know what the model for the relationship is in my life. It's my friend. A uh, young friend, Shannon, who we talked about before. And in fact, the book was supposed to be dedicated to her. And we had a miscommunication between my publisher and I. And it got left off. So it'll be in the second printing. Um, and so that was the model. And I, there's certainly nothing. There may be some element of attraction here or there. But it's more of a... It's hard. It's kind of between a father-daughter and a dear friend. Yeah, I don't know. But I wouldn't call them romantic. I would, and if it, God, if you re, if you think that they're fucking, that's really a failure on my part. That shouldn't be. I think you made up a fucking scene when you, after you put the book down. No, I mean because you see that he is, you know, perfectly fine bedding women from wherever when yeah, he's right. cover anyway. Right. So it's you know it's the the man's not celibate. No, no, means. no. Um. But again, those are people he doesn't but care those about. Are, those are, yeah, those are very unnamed. Meant to, you know, we were talking about Green Arrow before. Um, I'm at the the season in season two, the part where he's willing to have sex with somebody at the office that he doesn't care about. Right, right. And, and that's why he's like, because it's easier, because I can walk out the door and go back to work. Right, right. And you know, and not care. So I get that that that's normally what this guy was feeling, but then. It, it came across very, like, ends-of-the-earth romantic. Mm. Like, and and one of the reasons that it bothered me was mainly that she was supposed to be so young and stupid. Right. Because then it's like, oh, my God. It's like, you know, every James Bond thing that people complain about, people are so happy now that there's going to be a James Bond girl who's not 23. Like, I don't think any of them had ever been older than 23 right. until this right. new announcement. Um, it doesn't matter how old the actors were that played him. To me, the most imp the most important thing to me about Eva is just I. It's hard to put my finger on. She's not obviously she's not kicking ass in the book because this is I just didn't think it was realistic. And remember, I plotted this not on my own. I plotted it in conjunction with uh, the 
Russo brothers who created the whole premise. Um, but the but she hit, but she fires guns. Oh, no, I mean oh, it's only at the end. Yeah, but I right. mean not like she's helpless. Right. I did, but I didn't. It's not realistic to have her just thrown into that world and just start kicking ass. That's not what our book is about. Right. Um, but what her the goodness of her nature, I think, is kind of saves our hero in a way that goes beyond all the action sequences. That was what was important about her to me. But anyway, well, I'm sorry it hit you in a funny way. It's, I wish I had nailed it better for you. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's you. I mean, first of all, like you said, you wrote it with these guys who are known for, for doing movies. Mm-hmm. But I, to me, it just seemed very intentional that that was what you were doing was looking for an 80s action movie. Yeah, and that's, right. That's the way all of them were. Right. Stallone could be 50 years old and it didn't matter. <laughs> right. And he was saving, saving a girl who's, you know, wearing next to nothing. Right. And, um, you know, rescue her from her life. Right. To me, that that one kiss that happens in Ciudad is reminiscent of the one kiss that happens in Capote in Kansas. And I've had people say, about the kissing Capote in Kansas that, oh, Truman was coming on to this guy on death row. That was really awful. I was like, oh, Jesus, that's not the way I saw it. To me, it was more of a just searching desperately for any kind of comfort to offer, and that's what was available. And that, I mean, that's definitely something that happens. Right. Um, I know you have to go soon, but um, that comfort and intimacy is something that people look for mm-hmm. when they're a dire traumatic situation, right. which is, you know, it's funny because if you were actually ever in one of those situations, it, it, it would seem like, Oh my God, under the circumstances of, I would never cheat on my spouse. Right. <laughs> and then you're thrown into something. It's like, hell yes, you will because you don't know if you're going to come out of this alive right. and you just want to connect. You just want human touch and you, you know, you just want to know somebody's on your side. Right. So, right. I mean, so I get it. I just think it's done a lot. Yeah, right. No, I get that. Well, it's a, it's an odd. It's been an interesting book release for me because, like I said, it's. I think I'm proud of it, but to be honest, I haven't read it since it. I got my comp. I started to, and I just say like, I can't. I'm not in the. I don't know. Even though I. It's a big book. It is. I, I, I'm. How long did it actually take you? Because it is a really big book. Um. It's hard because we developed it for a long time. Like we were plotting and researching and got at one point we got on the phone with like a CIA agent who had been down there and knew the area and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that guy actually on the phone said, I'll tell you what, if you really want to know the area, just come down there with me. We'll stay for a week. And I, and I hung up the phone and said, uh, yeah, there's no fucking way. If you guys need somebody who's going down there, you got the wrong guy. And they said, no, yeah. no, we're not going down there either. Don't worry about it. In fact, did you know I just... Um, this can be told now. It was kind of secret, but do you know who Josh Dysart is? Yeah. Did you hear what he's doing soon? No. He's going to go to the Kurdistan region of of Iraq. That's not as part of a UN camp and see how people live there and witness their hardships, and then he's eventually going to develop either a graphic novel or a series of comics or something about it. Wow. But that job, because of my connections um, at Random House, because of the Jonathan Kellerman books I've adapted, was offered to me first. And the U- I got on the phone with the UN people, these really noble people who try to feed people around the world. And they were ex- telling me what they were interested in. Well, they didn't know a lot about comics. And I began to worry that not only would I be writing something and traveling to this crazy part of the world, um, but I might also kind of be educating them on how to make a comic. And I thought, man, I'm like at the last quarter or so of my novel. And I don't think I can afford the psychic energy to do this. Um, so, and besides, I have this dear friend, Josh, who specializes in this kind of thing. He wrote Unknown Soldier. Is that what it's called? For Vertigo slash DC. Um, and it dealt with those kind of issues in Africa really successfully. And he loves to travel and he loves this kind of stuff. So I said, you know what? I don't think I'm your guy, but I think Josh might be good for it. And that was, quite, I don't know, six, eight months ago or something. And he finally announced where he's going. Um, so it's exciting. And he thanked me on Facebook and I said, you know what? 
it's good all around. It's better for me, it's better for you, and it's probably better for the world because you'll do a better job of it than I would have. Wow. That's a hell of a thing. Yeah. I would not have liked to tell my wife that I'm going to Iraq. To... <laughs> I can imagine that conversation. Yeah, yeah. But he's, I mean, he has a living girlfriend, but he doesn't have kids and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little different experience for him. Anyway, we were talking about um, research. Ciudad, God, I don't remember what year this all started, but I know I wrote, I finished the script like five and a half years ago. So I was a very different writer and a very different person back then. And then one artist came on and kind of flamed out. That took like two years. Another artist came on and... Uh, tried to do it and I just didn't think he was good enough so that didn't work out and then finally we got this guy who was quite good but you know it's a big book it took him a year and a half it's about 170 pages yeah and it's dense I mean every you know there's a lot of a lot of panels if you consider every panel an illustration it's it's a shit ton of work yeah I was thinking you know for the the like third act of it is is so much car chase stuff I'm like yeah Man, I've heard so many artists complain how they right. hate drawing cars. It's tough. And car chases, I, I do believe that they don't work as well in comics as they do on film. So we tried to have those, but maybe downplay them a little. Maybe upplay the, you know, the gunplay and the hand-to-hand fighting and downplay the car chases a little bit. Yeah, he, you know, he, he pulled it off. Yeah, yeah he's good. It, you know, it wasn't like to compare your books. I liked Chris Somney's work. Yeah, on yeah. Better. He's great. Yeah. Um, but Chris is one of. The, I mean, he's just a freak. He, he was like 24 when he did our book, and there was no way a 24 year old should be that good. Yeah, I mean, it's truly unbelievably right. remarkable. It's just you know, gorgeous work all the time, very consistent. Mm. I just found out. I, I don't know if this is a secret or not, but. I'm going to do another one of those Kellerman books, and I get to work with Michael Gatos again, so that's nice. Cool. Yeah. So what uh, what is that like? They they basically Jonathan Kellerman writes these he sells a ton of books, and he writes these psychological thrillers, and uh, he likes comics, so he likes to have them adapted. We've done two of them so far, and they become it's the most daunting thing is they're like 500 page books, and we have like 170 pages to do a graphic novel. So there's a lot of streamlining. And I was reluctant to do so in the first book because he has final approval on everything. I was like, mm-hmm. shit, I can't leave out anything. He's going to get mad. But I, it turns out he's completely supportive and collaborative, and he's totally fine with whatever we've done. So, I, But the it's, second one, I was a little freer to streamline and make things a little more visually exciting. Is it um, with Oni Press? No, those are through Random House, some division of okay. Random House. I forget who it is. Because I don't normally associate Random House with comics. Yeah, it's it's a kind of an interesting project for him. Again, I don't know that they make a ton of money on these books, but Kellerman likes to do them, and he makes them a ton of money, so they're going they're yeah. to do them. It's kind of uh, something that's normal now. I mean, the popular TV shows have comic adaptations, yeah, and right. other books like Dresden, you know, gets comic version. Right, right. Um, you know. Oh, but will you forgive me if I go work on my son? Okay, here's what my son's been making all week. You build a car out of a mousetrap. Have you ever heard of such a thing? No. Do you hear my cat crying now? <laughs> <laughs> Give me cake. Do you want to say hi? So out of a mousetrap? Oh, like a like a little um like a racing. Yeah, car? kind of. You're using the spring to pull a string, which is wrapped around an axle. Okay. So it's part of his science class, and we built this little car, and we're having trouble with the string and how to attach it and how to wind it and so on. So we need to go work on that before bedtime. Okay. Well, I'm glad that we got to catch up talking about all of our usual things, books and booze, yes, yes. and, you know, important things in life. I'm not sure we got enough sex talk in there. We'll have to work on that next. We'll do another and one. I did ask you about rimming, so that there was something. It's it's true, <laughs> and apparently that was that was the tweet of the day was somebody getting their rim job in a football game tailgate oh, nice. parking lot. <laughs> I don't know. I suspect it was two men, but one of them just bent there over with his pants oh, down. Nice. Yeah, it's like okay, you Lions fans go. I guess. 
All right. Well, yeah, you have a great night. Thank you, dear. It was really a delight to talk to you. It's been too long. I know it has. All right. Do you have any last minute like recommendations for the year that you want people to hmm. make sure they, they read or drink? No, I, I'm not going to. Let's see. People know Ciudad is out and I wish they'd buy that. Um, my friend Jason Aaron always does good work and the Star Wars comics are going to be out soon and they sold a million copies. So it feels kind of stupid asking people to buy it. But, because they are. Yeah, <laughs> but I know it's going to be really good. And uh, my friend Dennis Hopeless writes uh, Spider-Woman, and I think that's probably a really good book. I have not read the second issue yet, but I think I like what he's doing. Okay. And, and for, as for novels, you know what I've become yeah. really hooked on is the Longmire books. Oh, I haven't tried them yet. But and again, they're quite popular. Very they into the show. They don't need me to prop them up, but um, yeah. the books are really well done. In fact, the books I tried the TV show based on after I read the first book, and I cannot watch it because the actors don't live up to my vision. But oh. but I understand if the show is appealing because the characters are really dynamite. Yeah, they definitely. I like them. I, I like the cast. Yeah. Um, well, it'd be interesting if you're into the show to see what you think of the books. I could not go the other way, but I bet you could go from the show to the books. That probably, oh, because then that's who I would be envisioning. Right. Right. For me, his friend Henry, I just, just Lou Diamond was not that guy. When Lou Diamond showed up, I said, "Yeah, I'm done. I'm going to turn this off now." Okay. And Lou Diamond is probably very talented and good in it. He's just not what I saw. So. He is. He's he he has a really cool personality. Yeah. Well, he's he's an incredible character. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I got. That's all you got. Okay. Well, you have a great holiday. Thank you so much, dear. You right. cut, cut, and then let me say goodbye to you for real. Yeah, I totally will. <laughs> um, don't forget that you can follow Andy just using his his name, Andy Parks, on Twitter. Um, you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter and AmberUnmasked.com, like I said, for everything else. So um, make sure that you let me know which episodes of Vodka Clock you really enjoyed listening to, and then I will try to do more of that, you know, for 2015. Cheers. <laughs>